Live from Sydney, this is General Ike, Building Jerusalem. Our guest today is Adam Chalmers. Adam is a software engineer and comedy writer based in Austin, Texas. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me here, Ike. You have been coding since you were how old? Uh, probably 15, I want to say. Do you remember how you got into it originally? Uh, yeah. Um, a friend of mine in uh, seventh grade, uh, he and I were competing to make websites that were kind of like slowly one-up each other in terms of impressiveness. And he started programming JavaScript, put some fancy effects on the website. And so I had to learn a little, a little bit of JavaScript to do it. And um, yeah, just kind of taught, taught myself a little bit by reading tutorials online, trying to get some cool effects on there. And it, it was something that you were instantly into, or was it something that took time to develop? Um, I was pretty, pretty into it from when I first started. Um, I didn't make much progress until... Uh, a year later, when we started learning basic programming in classes, um, I think like eighth grade, we started learning basic programming in classes. And I'd also been like, those are back in the golden days of like uh, Macromedia Flash. Yeah. Now everyone was making those Flash games all the time. And so uh, some dude on the internet from a forum I used to go to called Mr. Fluff would like answer all of my action script questions. <laughs> And, like, link me to really good tutorials and stuff. So, I've, I think he lived in Brisbane, maybe, but I've got no idea who he was. But it's, like, some dude on the internet who was, like, patient with this kid who wanted to know how to make games and shit. So and did you make... Did you end up making any Flash games yourself? Yeah, I made, like, um, uh, like little bits and pieces here and there. I don't think any of them were ever, like, put on the internet on, like, Newgrounds or congregate or anything like that but yeah that's kind of how i got my start making just fun little video games in flash do you remember any of them like fondly and specifically i made one called basic blaster during work experience um which is just like your standard kind of side-scrolling shooter where you have a little spaceship that can move up and down you can fire off missiles and you know enemies spawn at the other end of the screen that kind of thing take that seventh grade nemesis yeah fuck you (laughs) <laughs> no, that's 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 not that's not. Uh, no, thank you, thank you for giving me the opportunity to learn. Right. When when <laughs> was it that you decided that like this is something I could do long term? Um, I think when we started taking actual classes in programming, which was in uh, like I think ninth grade when that started, I found it really really enjoyable. And certainly by the end of high school, like by the end of year twelve, uh, I did really well in classes there and made another game for the final project. And was like, wow, this is super fun. This is really creative. You know, you can, you can really, you know, my favorite thing about programming is that if you're, you know, if you're an artist, you have to use a brush and you have to have good brush skills. And if you're a sculptor, you have to have really good like sculpting skills and you're kind of limited by your tools and your medium you have available for crafting with. But if you want to make art through code, you are kind of only limited by your imagination and your ability to translate that imagination into logical instructions. 
So someone mm. who didn't really have the patience for practicing all the fine brush technique or how to sculpt or anything like that, I found it really creative to be able to say, hey, I think this would look really cool. Let's see what it looks like. So it's made a lot of like little visual, like little uh, visualizations and animations and experiments like that and had a really good time with it. And I knew that programming was a job you could do. So it seemed like I was having a lot of fun doing something that would, would be profitable. Nice. Yeah. It's quickly becoming a vid job. Yeah. Uh, they say that software is eating the world and I hope it doesn't eat too quickly. And I hope that it leaves a lot of other jobs out there. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I moved to, I moved to America in 2017 to be a software developer over there and it's working out really well. So yeah, it's certainly a, any reader, any any listeners out there who like maths or computers, I'd encourage you to try programming because it can be very fun and very profitable and it's a good lifestyle. How would you recommend people get started? I think go out and uh, buy a book that teaches you about programming. If you don't need to have a lot of visual stuff, I'd suggest you go out and buy a book on Python. If you do need to have, if you'd really like to have visual stuff there, maybe buy a book on JavaScript, because with JavaScript you can make visual stuff really easily. But yeah, go ahead and buy a book so that um, you have like a structure to learn from. And I think that having a a physical book there is a a good way to make sure you actually use it. And could you give us an idea of like how big the frustration wall is? Like how long before you're doing stuff that actually feels fun? That's a tough question to answer. Um, I think that for people who really enjoy, I think that a lot of people who really enjoy programming, you know, it, it kind of feels a bit like doing maths. Like you have this puzzle that you're trying to solve, or it's like doing a Stoku or, you know, solving a series of equations. You know, it's kind of, you have this problem you're trying to solve and you've got a bit of a wall to break through to get there. When you do, it feels really satisfying. And um, if you enjoy that kind of feeling, those little puzzles, then I think you'll really enjoy programming. If you don't, you might find it a bit more frustrating to get started. Fair. Uh, there's this sort of community, I, I don't know, embedded in adjacent to uh, the code community, which is uh, the rationalist community of the West Coast and now of the internet. How did you uh, first stumble into them? So a friend of mine in high school, a uh, different friend, uh, he was really into... He was really into uh, Less Wrong, the uh, kind of original rationalist website. I think he was drawn to it from a from uh, an economics background because Less Wrong originally started off as a series of posts on uh, Robin Hansen's blog, Overcoming Bias. And so this friend was really into Less Wrong and advised me to go and read a bunch of stuff from it. And I think uh, in the couple of months between finishing high school and starting university got really into it and read a lot of stuff on there and just really enjoyed it. People were making a lot of sense. Uh, and I also kind of, uh, I did a philosophy course throughout year 12, mm-hmm. uh, which was really, really interesting. And I found that um, a lot of the opinions on this wrong kind of lined up really nicely with my experiences and ideas about philosophy already, particularly about, um, about Bayesianism, you know, how to like, uh, that belief comes in degrees, you know, you don't, you know, belief isn't this thing you do or don't have. 
You know, there's no such thing as like knowledge that you do or don't possess, right? Everything comes in uh, a degree of freedom. Uh, sorry, a degree of knowledge, right? So, you know, do you think the, the sun will rise tomorrow? You don't know that for certain, right? Uh, but you are pretty sure it will, right? right? And so sometimes, you know, there's like a whole school of philosophy about skepticism that says, well, you know, you don't know the sun will rise tomorrow and you also don't know you know, whether a coin will be flipped heads or tails. So, you know, doesn't this just prove that everything is certain? And, you know, well, perhaps nothing is truly certain, but, you know, just because everything's a shade of grey doesn't mean it's all the the same shade of grey, right? Right. I'm obviously more certain that the sun will rise tomorrow than I am of a coin flip being heads. Um, And so when I started reading Less Wrong, I found a bunch of uh, really useful terminology and philosophy that kind of helped me... Uh, I guess, like, that lined up really well with the ideas I've been uh, trying to, to develop throughout high school. And the, the, what would you say, the community, that that world has shifted a lot in the past few years? Yeah, it's... Um, uh, I always think of Less Wrong as kind of being a bit like a, like a dandelion, you know? It, like, slowly grew and grew and grew, and it uh, seemed to wither, but that withering was actually a very natural part of the life cycle. And then, you know, you know, like a child, like picking up a dandelion, just, just blowing it out into the breeze, you know, like it, uh, it transitioned and a thousand little blossoms kind of scattered themselves in the wind and landed somewhere else and grew a lot of other, uh, a lot of other flowers. So when you were... Rationalist communities are like flowers. They reproduce in the same way. Okay. That, that's that's the that's the soundbite for the magazine. I'm Russia's not speaking metaphorically. Like this is very literal. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm legally required to say I'm not a botanist. Fair enough. I, uh, it, it's on the record. But um, like when you were first getting involved in them, it was uh, that was what would you say the growth period of the dandelion? That was back when it was basically just Elias Yudkowsky's community blog. Uh, yeah, where a lot of it was, I mean, I think by the time I read a lot of the sequ- all of the sequences had already been written, and so Eliezer had kind of like delivered onto the world his wisdom, he kind of nailed his sequences to the door of the church. And um, Could you give us a bit of background on who Eliezer was and what his 95 theses were? <laughs> uh, so Eliezer Yudkowsky started less wrong, and he's uh, an interesting guy with a lot of really interesting um, uh, opinions and views about rationality, cognitive bias, um, AI, and it's like the way that we solve hard problems in the world. Um, he, he's a really widely read guy. And so when I first started reading Less Wrong, he was how I got exposed to a lot of like really interesting and different brilliant thinkers in different parts of the world. So he draws on a lot of the cognitive bias literature from, you know, Kahneman and Tversky, uh, the stuff that you would these days be reading in Thinking Fast and Slow, or a lot of the stuff about evolution as being, you know, an, uh, an optimization process, what we call in computer science a hill climbing process, where every step brings you kind of higher and higher and higher along the hill, but you may only, only be reaching a local maximum. Mm-hmm. You may get to the top of this hill and have nowhere to go from there. And it turns out it's actually quite a small hill, <laughs> but because you could only ever step upwards... Or, you know, uh, explaining quantum mechanics in a way that 
actually made sense because, you know, of course, as a year 12 student, I was um, fascinated by quantum mechanics and I had no idea what it, how it worked. And I was like, wow, this, this is all so mysterious and unknowable and cool and wow, it's mystical. And then I read Yudkowsky and he was like, well, I mean, actually, if you think about it as, um, as a state space with, uh, you know, where each, each point in space, you know, it, it all comes down to wave functions and it's all pretty straightforward deterministic maths. Um, so it's, I read a lot of, uh, Yudkowsky is really good at presenting ideas in a really accessible way. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I'm sure there's a lot of people who would disagree with me, but um, at least for me, uh, I found, uh, especially as a as a you know as an 18 year old, he was really good at explaining a lot of ideas I'd never heard of before and tying them together into a really cohesive package. And his goal of doing that was to build up to a community of people that could understand uh, and talk properly about AI and especially the existential risk associated with AI. And in order to do that, you really need to understand cognitive bias because there's a lot of cognitive biases around AI because it's something we just, you know, our brains haven't ever needed to reason about. So it's very easy to treat AI as being like a very smart human because that's what your brain's designed to model, right? Your brain is designed to model humans. So you need to be aware of that and correct for it. And then you need to study... Uh, optimization processes and evolution is a really good example of that. So there's a whole thing about evolution, unless wrong. You need to understand like the sociology of science. So looking at the way the quantum mechanics has been interpreted over time is a helpful way of doing that. So a lot of the things he built up to, and there's a whole sequence about uh, language and about metaethics, which are, you know, obviously both fairly important parts of AI. So um, all of this is sort of building into his uh, fundamental, his like, what would you say his main hobby horse, which is like the uh, the well, the threatened possibility of an artificial intelligence rising and becoming the single most powerful entity in the universe? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think he very explicitly says at one point, okay, this is where we start talking about AI. I kind of want to do that from the beginning and then realize I needed to explain this first and this first and this first. And so anyway, it took five years and now here we are. Congratulations, you're ready to talk about AI. (laughs) So this is really interesting. So it's kind of, um, well, what what we think of as the rationalist community is, is, like I remember reading a post where he was saying that it's, it's weird that you can walk like it, go in any major city in the world you can um look up a karate dojo and then just walk in and it's basically a school for punching good or a boxing uh boxing gym and they can teach you how to punch good um but then if you like if you want to think good there isn't really any way to do that and he's like well people would might say universities but that's not true for a bunch of reasons some obvious and some subtle and so what he was interested in doing was like making this sort of um, uh, like formalizing the trainable skill of thinking well, but like all of that was ultimately to serve this, um, this one, uh, what do you say, this one, this one big um, idea that he had, which was we are not thinking about um, the danger of artificial intelligence well. And a lot of that is to do with like, what you're talking about, that our brains just have never had to model this sort of thing before. We're not very good at it. Uh, yeah, yeah, basically. Uh, I think Eliezer himself, uh, I think he wanted to do this because he, as a younger person, 
had a lot of very misguided opinions about AI. He specifically, you know, he talks about how he thought that super rationality implied uh, super benevolence, right? That if you're, you know, that, uh, that, you know, a human with its limited human rationality is only so capable of being ethical and good. But obviously, if we're smarter, we would understand goodness better and we'd be able to act in a better way. Uh, and so he thought that there could never be any danger of AI because if you were smart enough to take over the world, you'd also be smart enough to understand what to do with the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something that you really change his mind about. Uh, in AI, we call this the orthogonality thesis, that ethics and intelligence are orthogonal. You know, that you is can to be, say they, don't, they, they vary independently? Yeah. You can be the smartest person in the world and use that intelligence to do very evil things because you understand... Whatever, what other people think is good, you just don't care about it. Right. There's, just because you're smart doesn't mean you have to care about things. And this was um, the, the fundamental argument here uh, about the, this computer, as you say, taking over the world, is um, about the, the way that it can self-improve, it can optimize itself. Uh, yeah, so just to clarify, AI doesn't have to take over the world to be a big threat. I think people are more worried about AI just like destroying the world in, in some way <laughs> like uh turning everyone into uh parts for an even bigger and better computer but uh yes so you've hit on the idea of a uh, intelligence explosion which i think came out of uh a researcher whose name is ij good or maybe it was Werner Winger. uh i need to look it up but intelligence explosion is the idea of you know if i can make an ai that's just one percent better than i am then it can make an AI better than I can. And it'll make an AI that's 102% as good as I am. And that AI can make a third AI, and that third AI can make an even smarter AI, and you get this recursive cycle where this AI is always improving itself, and it's uh, you know improving itself in a way that lets it keep improving itself, and so suddenly, you know, kind of like an exponential curve, you know, like any kind of compounding interest thing, you know, mm-hmm. uh, increasing... You know, you're kind of accelerating your intelligence in a really uh, scary way, and eventually, you know, it basically says that anything beyond human intelligence that created it will eventually become like maximally smart, given the resources available to it. Meaning that once once a computer learns how to uh, code itself, edit its own code to make itself smarter. Then it can just keep doing that, and they, there's no reason that should that process should stop anywhere but the top. Well, that, I mean that yeah, that is that is one scenario. Okay, that's what people kind of uh, that yeah, that's that's the intelligence explosion scenario. It may be in practice. You know, we spoke about um, about hill climbing before. Mm-hmm. It might be a hill climbing thing where you know maybe maybe this AI is good enough to improve itself but only as in a specific way. Right. And maybe that will reach diminishing returns. You know, like maybe the AI will only know how to optimize one part of itself better than you can, right? I mean, maybe make an AI, an AI that's smarter than you, but it, you know, is lacking, um, you know, maybe it's smart enough to like improve its own code, but not smart enough to fundamentally re-architect itself into a very different kind of machine. Mm-hmm. And even if it keeps improving itself, it'll always get better at rewriting its code, but only ever better at doing, you know, superficial refactors to make itself faster and faster. And it'll never actually be able to redesign itself to fundamentally change its cognition and learn new concepts. Okay. 
So just because it's smart, slightly smarter than you, than you doesn't mean it's smarter in the right way. So traditionally, but the fear, the fear is definitely that, you know, some AI could be smarter than you in the right way, and so intelligence explosion is possible. Right. No one's sure if it's likely or not, but, you know, even a very small risk of something very bad is worth taking seriously. Okay, so the small risk of something very bad here, like, could you, could you give us one of those, um, the, the basic scenario, a computer gets really, really clever, then what happens? A uh, computer gets really, really clever and then figures out that, um, you know, by uh, really rapidly sending out electric impulses across its circuits, it can create radio interference. And then it starts to send, like, radio broadcast waves to, like, across the FM spectrum. It's now can communicate with people, even if it's not connected to the internet or anything like that. And once it can communicate with people, it can, you know fake human voice or speak convincingly and try to get someone to put a delivery in the mail for it. Um, and so if it's super smart, maybe it's figured out the, you know, the protein folding problem. So it can place an order for, uh, you know, like a, a, a DN for, a, for a fabrication place to go and make some chemical compound for it which DNA origamis into a biological computer, which can then create biological compounds, and it creates a... I mean, you know, then, then you can create a DNA computer. And so now it has a second computer, which can operate incredibly, incredibly, incredibly fast and manufacture real-world chemical proteins. And then it announces to the world of radio that it's built this virus and that we should take its threat credibly and that it is going to demonstrate this by, you know, gassing half the population of this building that it lives in and therefore we need to, like, obey its demands now. Or it skips that stage entirely and just, like, uses this DNA computer and bootstraps itself into, you know, eventually building, like, solar panels around the sun that collect huge amounts of power and beam back to Earth and it starts slowly converting Earth into a giant computer to achieve whatever its goals are. Jeez. And, and while, you, while you're describing like a very particular avenue, there's sort of, um, at, at, the basic, at the basic level, it's like once you have a creature that's a lot more powerful than we are and has a lot more options than we do, if it wants to do mischief, it's kind of hard for us to stop it at that point. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like the the malicious genie problem or the, the monkey paw from The Simpsons, you know? You just the malicious genie problem. Yeah, you know, you 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 know, you rub a lamp and the genie says, "Oh, you've got three wishes," and you say, "Well, uh, you know, I wish for world peace," and so it gives you world peace by killing everyone on the planet. Right? <sighs> There's no more war. Genie, you come on, say. genie. Why you got to be that way? <laughs> and so you say, "Well, world peace without you killing anyone," and so it decides to, you know, uh, take away every every weapon in the world. Uh, which then crashes the economy and everyone's living in poverty and then all the major ISPs go to business and we lose the internet and no one can communicate. Mm. Like, you know, it's the idea that, like, with enough intelligence, you can find creative ways of achieving your goals that, you know, we're humans, we're biased, we tend to, you know, we're not good at, like, enumerating every possibility and figuring out which ones are most likely, you know? Right. We We think about the world in terms of movie plots, right? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. So, okay, so back to the growing dandelion. This is like Eliezer Yudkowsky's community blog. He decides he's going to try and 
go through like the, the basic principles of thought so we can think seriously about this artificial intelligence, which no one's taken seriously. That was, uh, what, like a few years ago? What's how, like now the, the community has, has, has grown and spread its little dandelion buds all over the world. And um, artificial intelligence, which at the time Eliezer was like the loudest voice out of a reason, reasonably small group of people is now like, well, what's that like on the world stage now? So it's, it's actually in really fascinating looking at the way that in the last 10 years, AI risk has transformed itself from being, you know, a bunch of, a bunch of transhumanist nerds talking on IRC and discussing what AIs would do if they were real because they read too much sci-fi into being uh, a really well-respected problem Mm -hmm. that's being addressed by major universities and think tanks. You know, something that like Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking, rest in peace, have like gone on TV and talked about in big public forums. So I think that, um, I think that there's been a very concerted effort by the AI community to professionalize itself and to be taken very seriously. And I think it's worked out really well. Uh, in my opinion, the kind of the major events around this were less wrong spawned, uh, Miri, the machine intelligence research institution, mm-hmm. which provided, uh, funding on a private private investment in a private think tank to study AI risk. Uh, at the same time, uh, a team in Oxford called the Future of Humanity Institute, which is led by Nick Bostrom, who's a professor of philosophy there. He's also really interested in AI risk. He collaborates a lot with Eliezer. And, you know, he's, he's a very well-respected Oxford professor. So he releases this book called Superintelligence. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of the academic book about AI risk. And before, you know, it's been covered here and there, but um, I think for 10 years or so, the whole field kind of languished because it was part of the the singularity, mm. which is this mysterious word that means so many different things to so many different people. And it's kind of more of a sci-fi concept than an academic one. Uh, Daniel Dennett, uh, no, sorry, David Chalmers wrote a study about the singularity, but apart from that, it wasn't really touched in academic circles. But... I think there was a very deliberate choice by the AI community to distance themselves from that from the word singularity and instead to talk about this much more mathematical and much more well-defined term, intelligence explosion and AI risk. So Nick Bostrom writes this book called Superintelligence and they must have had a great campaign for it because, <laughs> uh, you know, a lot of big people in the world read it. Uh, I think that I'm not sure if Bill Gates read it, but I know that Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk both read it. It got pretty wide. Um, it was really successful at professionalizing and uh, introducing these, these ideas to the academic world and kind of put them in a canonical form that people could read and respond to. Mm-hmm. Uh, as opposed to saying, yeah, it's a really important problem. Go check out this blog by some person who isn't part of the university world. Right, because Yudkowsky's an autodidact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that when superintelligence was released, that was kind of a turning point in that now these institutions like Miri or Elon Musk's Open AI group or OpenPhil in California, these groups could kind of point to it and point to all the bars that it generated and say, hey, this is a really serious research topic and it has, you know, like really important implications for the 21st century. So we need to be studying this stuff. Do you feel like as a, as a, what, as a species 
that we're, we've got enough of an eye on that now? I think as a species, we are, you know, I think what a very common uh, cognitive device is that we tend to discount things in the future or discount things that are unlikely uh, too much. So we tend to have real trouble dealing with risks that are very small probability, but very high magnitude, you know, things which are probably not going to happen, but if they did, it would be terrible. Mm-hmm. Right? And you see this with the way that people don't know how to buy insurance rationally, and they take uh, bad risks with their healthcare. I mean, people do all kinds of irrational things. And AI is definitely something like this, where, you know, we absolutely, as a species, uh, have not figured out the right way to think about this. Even the people who are taking it super seriously, you know, we've got no idea just how serious it is. Uh, you know, there's people who kind of go with the worst case possibilities. There's people who take the best case possibilities. Uh, but I think that, like, Definitely as a species or as a, as, as a society, we've become aware that this is something we need to take seriously and we need to get our shit together. What, what's the... Uh, like, I remember reading a, a while ago a couple of different views on, like, what the bottleneck is. Is it that there's not enough, like, money, there aren't enough people in the field? What, what could we do to take it more seriously? That's an interesting question. Uh... One of, the, one of the things that makes me really positive about the future of AI is that it's no longer just you know, two or three groups doing it. There's actually quite a lot of groups researching AI risk these days. I mean, back in the day, you know, I thought it was only the Future of Humanity Institute, but now there's them, there's Miri, there's OpenAI, there's OpenPhil. Uh, there's a new team in Cambridge who actually gave a talk in uh, rural Australia last mm. week. There's a lot of research being done, and so... Different institutes are going to have different bottlenecks. I think Miri recently announced they no longer have a money bottleneck. They're now uh, at a research bottleneck. What, think, a what bottleneck? Uh, sorry, they no longer have a money bottleneck. Mm-hmm. They do have a research bottleneck. So they're now looking to hire more people because, you know, they want more research output. Okay. Uh, I don't know what other institutions' bottlenecks are, but there's enough variety in it that... I think if you have a lot of something, whether it's you know, money or researchability or organizational talent, uh, I think there's enough institutions out there that you will hopefully be able to find one that is trying to find someone like you. <laughs> right. So if, you, uh, if you're useful at stuff and you decide that what you want to do is try and protect humanity against the possibility of being wiped out by uh, artificial intelligence in the not-too-distant future... The, the AI research, AI risk research community wants you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the website 80,000 Hours is a kind of a career guidance website. Mm-hmm. I think it was started by people in the rationalist community uh, or the effective altruism community, which is, you know, has like a 90% overlap. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but 80,000 Hours is a really good page about uh, AI risk as a research career. And about how to contribute to that in different ways, and what uh, what kind of jobs you can expect in that field, and how to how to contribute to it. And the eighty thousand, like the the eponymous eighty thousand hours in the title, comes from the idea, if I remember correctly, that uh, the average career goes for about eighty thousand hours, and so you have eighty thousand hours to what you say do your life's work in some sense. And so what's so the question is like, what's the most useful life's work that you could do? Yeah, yeah, completely. 
in the classic effective altruism thing, it says, hey, we have this limited resource, which in this time, in this case, is working hours. How do we most effectively allocate it to achieve good? Have you, I, I, I shouldn't ask if you personally have done the 80,000 hours quiz? Uh, I've read, I've read parts of it, um, and I think I've taken the quiz, yes. Uh, an interesting thing about their website is they know that, you know, the specifics of your personality and what you want are going to affect a lot of what is best for you to work at, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so they gave me quite a long list of things I could do. And it's hard to tell which one of them is actually a good idea. Um, but I'm certainly very happy at the moment being a software engineer and programming for a living. And I think my basic plan right now is to kind of keep doing that for five, maybe ten years, and to eventually shift into AI research. Uh, I did my philosophy honors in decision theory, which is kind of just AI research with a funny moustache and a hat, trying to like <laughs> look like a to impersonate economics. <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant I, I remember you you mentioned this to me once actually um to sort of shift gears a bit here you, pun intended you i remember you uh, mentioned this to me once because um one of those one of those things that that is really popular in undergraduate philosophy courses is the trolley problem this idea that you're going to um that your i mean the, the basic the really really basic form of it is your uh you come to it to a, uh, a, what do you call those things? Those little places, those little boxes next to the side of train train tracks where you can ah oh, train boxes, train boxes. So you're in a, you come to a train box. Yeah, you're in the control room of um of a train station. Yeah, control room of a train station, and you see a cart like barreling down the tracks, and um, if you do nothing, it's going to uh, hit someone on the track. No, if you hit if you do nothing, it's going to hit five people who are on the track. But if you pull the lever, then you'll divert the cart and then it'll go onto a different track and hit one person. And the question is, are you going to pull the lever? And like the, it, it's meant as a sort of exercise to bring out um, those cases where like consequentialists would differ from deontologists. Like some people would look at that and go, well, of course you have to pull it and kill one because one death is preferable to five deaths. And other people will be like, how dare you? You can't sully your hands with blood it is not on you to murder that man and of course in philosophy everyone has to speak with accents like that mm -hmm. but um that's I, actually why i went in a software i can't do accents well yeah yeah, yeah. tragic I, I i hear that you can um there are like other ways into philosophy later on but they're more complex mm -hmm. but anyway like the the point was that that um i remember we used to discuss these trolley problems in in first year philosophy and there was kind of like this understanding like yeah but like these aren't real we're just like using edge cases deliberately to try and tease out the 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 subtle practical differences in different like theories of morality and then i was um you were telling me once about how uh this the trolley problems are no longer just theoretical because if you're in a self-driving car and it's it, things you know take a take a wrong turn and the car is, you know, has the car has to make a choice. Am I going to hit that guy or that guy? Or it's no longer a, um, no longer just theoretical. So uh, a lot of the stuff that um, was just like just philosophy is now like, are now questions at the heart of like how we're going to 
code our automotive industry to behave? Yeah, um, you know, I, I'm a, one of my more controversial views. I think philosophy is a high growth and profitable industry because of things like this, right? I think that um, when humans are forced to make ethical decisions, they generally kind of make that decision from their gut. And at the end of the day, there's kind of not much you can say. You can you maybe disagree with what mm-hmm. they got said, but, you know, everyone's got a f- roughly similar human intuition. Uh, but machines don't have any intuitions about that stuff. Mm-hmm. And so the job of philosophy, I'm kind of, I'm kind of skeptical about the whole problem of philosophical ethics because I think, because uh, it's, it's really hard. It's really hard to formalize uh and find rules and procedures for all these kind of uh, situations. And I, I don't, I don't know whether that's a realistic goal for humans, you know, cause we're such, uh, informal, messy, organic thinkers. And I'm not sure if we are good at following rules in that way or if we even should, but, uh, you know, uh, you know, there is a whole class of agents which are being asked to make increasingly important, uh, decisions which need to have formalizations and rules and procedures, right? And that is, of course, machines. So I feel like the entire program of philosophical ethics uh, lends itself quite well to teaching machines how to be ethical. It's, it's funny you say this because I remember reading a, um, a study they did within the past few years about um, uh, uh, professors of ethics and apparently they uh, neither act more ethically nor less ethically than average people. So it's like, the, it's clearly like the, the, the study of ethics isn't doing much for people, but hey, apparently this 400-year-old field, or whatever, 2,500-year-old field, is like really, really useful for computers. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think there's a lot of really important stuff to take out of ethics for humans in philosophy, but I think that generally the impact of the field has been uh, is difficult to trace to specific outcomes uh, in human society. But I think that it's really well suited to machines. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think like, obviously, you know, academic philosophies had like a lot of big contributions to the world. When you look at, uh, you look at like the Greeks impact on ethics and actual, in actual lived experience of people, you know, um, or, utilitarian and um how how uh, how mill you know is like a big influence on uh, human rights and feminism and the right of women to vote and everything so not to shit all over academic philosophy but yeah i think it's um it's going to be really important specifically for machine learning in the future because machines don't have intuitions they only can obey their rules and so we have all these competing theories of rules about ethics and what to do in these situations i will point out that like we're a long way from self-driving cars having to make a trolley problem because Oh, sorry, having to solve a trolley problem mm-hmm. because, you know, at the moment they're just trying to avoid collisions, right? They don't, they can't do any kind of real scanning about uh, how many people are, are over there and how many people are over there and what's, you know, the, the most likely outcome. So I think that it's going to be a long time until our systems are advanced enough to make these decisions, but we certainly see the basic, the basic problems cropping up, uh, especially with, um, with autonomous weapons, uh, with autonomous drones. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, these decisions used to be made by a human viewing the screen from very far away, and so then you could kind of rely on all the human ethics stuff. But these days, more of these decisions, what we call like closed loop with no humans involved, you know, where the machines autonomously see what's happening and make a judgment about what to do. 
you know, for example, whether to blow up the someone's house or not. You know, these are these are procedures that they're programmed with that someone needs to be programming, right? So when you're building an autonomous drone, you're doing philosophy, right? And you may be doing you may be doing it badly and unintentionally, but you are, you know, you are teaching a machine how to act. You're 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 in a sense you're um you're providing like this uh parent role to it. You're teaching it how it should behave in the world. Yeah. The difference yeah. between right and wrong is on the coder. Have we have we passed this um this point now as a species? Like, do we actually have drones out there right now that can make their own decisions to kill people? I believe so. You would have to ask someone who's more familiar with the details of politics and war than me, but uh, I, I believe that is the case. And if not, it is only a political. Uh, you know, it's only a political force at stopping it it is technically very feasible right like the technology absolutely exists and if it's not being deployed that it's purely because of the restraint of whichever leader has access to it i remember reading which uh i don't know if i don't know if you all have read the news lately but i feel like we are running out of restraint in politics yeah yeah fair enough i remember reading this um this really horribly tragic piece on this where like it was talking about these um this few people who were like, stop the killer robots. That was their, their cause. And everyone's like, shut up. And like now that, and they used to be like absolute, like off the wall, you know, um, kooks. And now they're like a real lobby group who like go around to weapons conferences and desperately like beg the Americans and the Russians and the Chinese to sign accords that they won't make killer robots to kill each other. Yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, the AI, the AI industry and specifically the AI risk, an ethics industry is uh, not just focused on preventing, you know, super intelligent AIs from turning the world into computronium and destroying all human life. A lot of it's also dealing with other ethical issues like uh, bias in machine learning that, you know, learns to replicate real world bias against, say, black people applying for loans, right? Or the issues of autonomous weapons. It's like one of the 12 big uh, issues that came out of the recent conference on AI held in America last year. The Silomar conference? That's the one, yeah. I think they established like 12 big problems or 12 working groups, uh, each one kind of headed by a different team or university somewhere. And one of them is definitely uh, autonomous weapons. Mm-hmm. One of them's uh, bias and machine learning. One of them is uh, the alignment problem, which is how do you make an AI that aligns with human values and ethics? With um, to to sort of loop back to something we discussed earlier, um, with the the rationalist community sort of coming into bloom, and Eliezer like finally getting his dream of like a really well funded machine intelligence research institute and going off and doing that, what um, what are the other heads of the flower to you? Like what else? What else? Um, what are the issues and what are the and which other people have come out of the community in a, in a big way? I just want to. I just want to note that, like, while we're having this conversation, I don't know if the listeners can pick up on it, but there is um, an ice cream truck outside playing that, and it's just, it, and it's so hard to sit here and talk about a podcast while someone is like letting you know there's ice cream outside. There's so much ice cream outside. Yeah, just so I want to like paint that pic, that like that like sound picture for the viewers at home, for the listeners at home. <laughs> we appreciate your. Um... <laughs> your decision theory you can't see this but i'm actually salivating into a small bucket right now yeah 
Yeah, it's it's uh, it's pretty gross, guys. Yeah. Um. So the other the other kind of blossoms, I guess. Um. So wait, firstly, like let's. Wait a second. Do you reckon like uh, artificial intelligence has particular dominion over ice cream trucks? Um. I reckon that actually the the intelligence explosion happened, and they know me so well, they've realized I will go to an ice cream truck. Even if I suspect it's actually a self-driving car that escaped from, like, the Tesla factories and has learned to modulate radio waves to play green sleeves. And, uh, you know what? Uh, well done, AIs. You win. Like, I'm going to go get the ice cream. I, I really... Now I can't decide if I really want to write a, a, um, a screenplay where a, uh, like, a really gritty screenplay, like a thriller, where, um, a, a, an ice cream truck escapes... Oh, is this like a this is like a sequel to Christine, right? That Stephen King movie about the car, the the evil car. Christine too, but this time she's an ice cream truck. <laughs> Today's flavor, blood. <laughs> I, I really feel like the um the merchandising is right there. Like you make the movie and then like you try and like sell kids all these like little ice cream trucks that make mm, the noise. Mm-hmm, and like mm-hmm. the parents haven't seen the movies, the kids haven't seen the movies, they're like, oh yeah. We'll buy our kids this ice cream truck. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's why I should not go into merchandising. All right, so um, blossoms, the, uh, the the many dandelion heads flying through the air. So uh, there's a lot of different AI research institutions these days. I've uh, I've listed some of them previously. Uh, there's a group called CFIR, which is the Center for Applied Rationality. Applied Rationality. That's it. Um, which kind of takes the the whole like rationality and bias training of less wrong aspect into the wider world. And their goal is to teach, uh, I think they're primarily marketed towards business people, but basically just to teach people how to think better, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is helpful to the AI cause, but also helpful to, you know, human flourishing in general, no matter what the problem is. Um, There's a lot of less wrong meetups around the world. You know, Slate Star Codex meetups. Uh, Slate Star Codex is, of course, uh, another one of the offshoots of Less Wrong. It's a blog run by uh, Scott Alexander, who's a um, just a really good writer and a psychiatrist, I believe. And he's kind of part of this uh, rationalist blogosphere. Man, I said the word blogosphere. I haven't said that since, like, 2007. Blogosphere. Uh, yeah, but I, I think there's a lot of... Um, a lot of uh, rationalist institutions out there. Um, Eliezer wrote a really long fanfic called Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, mm. <laughs> which um, kind of like brought a lot of people into less wrong and I think kind of spawned a whole subgenre of what is called rationalist fiction, where the characters are smart and everyone kind of makes good choices and thinks appropriately about the situation. You know, they tend to be very genre aware. They tend to... So much of drama comes from people making bad choices right. in storytelling. Right. I think the main the, the main feature of rationalist fiction is no dumb choices. Wait, wait a second, because I, I read the original Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality. Now there's a whole genre. I think so. Yeah, yeah. There's um like a rationalist fiction Reddit where people post um post links to it, and it's it's a category and some kind of fiction websites. Is there anything else worth worth noting? I haven't delved into any of it myself. Okay. But I hear good things. Okay, so then there's uh so there's the the CFAR, there's Slate Star Codex, there's um 
there's these uh, this rationalist fiction. I remember um, just with the Harry Potter thing, uh, someone pointed out that like on the official uh, Machine Intelligence Research Institute website, you have like a, a list of some of the principal people at the top, and like one of them, it's like got Eliezer there, like the founder. And um, it's got one of those like little like bios next to him that like expands out. Like, mm-hmm. It finishes with a triple dot ellipsis. You click and it expands out. But um, it says like, he's the founder of the Machine Intelligence Research Institute and the author of the most reviewed dot, dot, dot. And like you click it and the next few words are Harry Potter fan fiction. <laughs> <laughs> but if you don't click it, it's so respectable. All right. Um, let's talk about... Uh, this this new Google two part verification system you heard you heard about this? No. Uh, okay. Well, Google is now um, slowly rolling everyone into two part verification. Do you mean two factor authentication? Yes. Okay. I got. I gotcha. Like uh, apparently, I, from my understanding of the pieces coming out within a few days, weeks, um, it's going to you're going to need to like click yes on your phone whenever you sign into a new device with your password. What do you make of this? Step uh, forward I've or actually step already, I've actually already uh, enabled that for my own account. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, it's really good practice. Uh, two-factor authentication or the more general multi-factor authentication is absolutely a must-have uh, for keeping your information secure. And in today's internet age, where everything is connected to everything else, it is absolutely essential. Okay. From a, secu- from a security perspective... Passwords suck. They are con- they're inconvenient to remember. They are kind of a single point of failure. You know, if someone gets your password, they then have access to your account for as long as it takes for you to notice and change your password. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's so hard to remember, people make them stupid things like uh, your wife's name and then the, the year you were born. So they're easily crackable uh, with... Modern GPU racks, even if your password is like eight random characters you got from mashing a keyboard, you know, that takes maybe two hours to crack if the website's hacked. So passwords are absolutely, you know, they kind of worked out fine for the old internet of the 80s where everything was slow and security wasn't a huge issue. Mm -hmm. But these days, multi-factor authentication is absolute must-have. What, okay, so what does that bring to the table? Why is it safer? So let's say that uh, I'm trying to log into my Gmail and that you are trying to hack me. Mm-hmm. So you could steal my password in, in, in a number of ways, you know, maybe even store a keylogger on my computer that sends you a live stream of every key I press. Mm-hmm. Maybe I have an insecure password that you managed to guess. Maybe, um, maybe I reuse the same password for my Gmail as I used in LinkedIn. And five years ago, LinkedIn's password database was breached and was made available online. And so now anyone who can like buy a rack of high power graphics cards can go through and crack all those passwords. Once you've done that, you can then automatically run through every email and password on LinkedIn and see, okay, I wonder if they reuse this password anywhere else. So there's a lot of ways you could potentially get my password. But if I have two-factor authentication enabled, having my password doesn't really mean much to you because you now also need to have my phone mm-hmm. to be able to press that little button that comes up. Wow. So uh, protects, it protects me a lot. And, you know, two-factor authentication isn't perfect. There are still ways you can... Um, there's still ways that an attacker could 
find a way around it, but it really puts a big dent in, uh, in an attack against you. Okay. So people used to use SMSs for two-factor authentication, and this was insecure um, because, again, like it's, it's a really good idea, but it's not foolproof. Uh, Matt Honan, the, who uh, used to write for Wired, he, uh, his whole digital life was erased by hackers oh. who um, got access to his Apple account uh, by taking over his two-factor authentication because they called up his phone company and were like, hi, my name's Matt Honan. Um, you know, I just dropped my phone in the bathtub, so I need to like get my SMS redirected to my wife's number. Here's my wife's number. Please redirect all the SMSs to her number. And, you know, after a couple of bullshit verification things, like, um, okay, can you tell me what your uh, mother's maiden name is and where you went to school? Okay, yeah, it's clearly you, uh, so we'll do that. And so they got the, the SMS redirected to the attacker's phone, and then the attacker could, you know, use a bunch of techniques to get into the Gmail account, and then, yeah, game, good game. <laughs> Jeez. Really interesting article if there's, like, some way to link to it in the bio of this podcast, then you'll be able to see it there. But um, Yeah, what's the article called? Um, we'll put a link to it in the description. Sure. But again, like two-factor authentication is not perfect, but it is a hell of a lot better than just relying on a password alone. Okay. And it uh, like you should absolutely be enabling it on all your devices if you can. Right. Well, th- that, that went totally uh, uh, orthogonal to what I was expecting because I was... Um I, I was I meant this in terms of like the should we trust massive corporations to know even more about us than they already do, sort of angle. I mean, yeah, I think it's I think the the two issues are very independent. But uh, enabling two factor authentication will not give corporations more information about you, and will keep your information really like much safer from malicious parties. Okay, two and especially when so much hacking can be like done automatically. Hmm. You want to have two two factor auth. Fair. Um, okay, cool. So that's it. In in general, um, I know you have a bit of a penchant for cryptography. Is there, um, it, like, when you talk about the the fundamental hackability of of passwords and stuff so, and stuff, is there a um, is there? It seems to me like the the world of cryptography seems to be splitting into stuff which is really easy to hack and stuff which is uh, like ethere- impossible even in theory to hack. Like they seem to be clustering. Uh, I'm not. I'm. I'm not sure. I see it that way. I don't think okay. I see it that way. Um, certainly, things which used to be very secure are no longer secure because either we find some theoretical approach that you know we kind of. Uh, the fundamental problem with security is that it's asymmetric, mm-hmm. right? For the defense to be good you have to kind of win defense every time. And a, hack, a, 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 a hacker only has to get through once, mm-hmm. right? Whereas a defender has to protect every time. So you have to kind of bear in mind that, you know, um, in the future, a cryptography scheme that's really secure right now may be broken in the future. Or maybe in the future, people will you know, manufacturing will advance to, to the point where it's economic to build special purpose machines that can solve this one crypto problem really quickly. Uh, or maybe in the future, people will be able to buy massive racks of GPUs to try every password in parallel combination 100 times per second, right? So, so you're saying that the, um, the 
sort of security arms race is still very much oh yeah going. very much going okay um yeah so uh you know what is uh, security at the end of the day there's no such thing as perfect security it's yeah. a matter of being secure enough you have to have a threat model like what kind of attacks are you trying to prevent against and how important is it to you that you be successful here like the steps you would take to protect your password against uh, a malicious friend or an abusive spouse are very different to the steps you take to protect your email from hackers, which is different to the step you take to protect your email from state-sponsored hackers, which is different to the steps you take to, like, ensure this remains secure for another century. Right. You know, these are all kind of different uh, problems, and so it's important to think about the specifics of your situation. But certainly we have a lot of advances in both defense and attack, uh, but again, I'm kind of fundamentally pessimistic about security. It's hard because the attackers only have to be right. They only have to get through once, mm-hmm. right? And you have to defend on so many different fronts and you have to make sure your cryptographic protocols are designed well and they don't have some flaw built into them. And then also, even if the algorithm's perfect, this particular implementation of it this particular coding up of the algorithm might have a flaw in it, right? Like maybe they do, maybe like when they add two numbers together, you can, um, if you give large enough numbers, it'll overflow and become a negative number or something, right? So the algorithm itself may have no flaws. Maybe the implementation has flaws. And then even if the implementation is correct, maybe there's some, uh, what they call a side channel attack or a timing attack where, it encrypts your data, but it kind of leaks some information about the timing that it took. Mm-hmm. And so if people try enough different, uh, if people try enough different times, they can slowly learn some other information about what your information looks like. Right. Okay. The, um, the recent, um, Intel CPU, uh, leaking stuff, Spectre, um, was a timing attack where, uh, you know, it's still, it's still kept everything private, but, if your information had a certain uh, property, like, you know, started with A, you mm-hmm. know, then it would be slightly faster to... Sorry, I'm speaking metaphorically here, but um, there, are, there are attacks against encryption where uh, you try a password that's uh, all A's, and you measure how long it took for the system to say that password's wrong, and they try a system that's all B's, and you see if that's faster or not. Right, And, and so you can slowly figure out what the first letter is by trying every possible combination and looking at the time it took. Whoa. And then once you get the first letter, you do it for the second letter and so on and so forth. So, so even if, if the algorithm the, is secure... If it takes the computer slightly longer to figure out that, that BBBBBBB is not the password, then that implies that like the first letter might be a B because like the first letter got through? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, so there are these timing attacks, and this is one specific instance of a more general phenomenon called a side-channel attack. Uh, if you put a thermometer next to a computer, you can no, learn something shut about... Up. Shut up a thermometer next to a computer. I hate to say it, but yeah, these are, these are uh, serious attacks. And as cryptography gets stronger and stronger, these side-channel attacks are becoming the next hotness, right? And it's not always going to be right. economic to do it. And this isn't something that, you know, your abusive boyfriend will be using against you to try and figure out how to read your emails. But this is something that if you're guarding, say, military secrets. Right. Uh, or like the power grid of a, of a nation. 
this is something I attack might use against you. Russian yeah, you spies can, can afford these methods. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Like, these are not always affordable, but they are viable. Yeah. You know, uh, someone can... Um, if someone just has, like, enough sensors around your computer, they can learn from the kind of, like, magnetic interference and stuff like that. They can learn some information about what's going on when it does the cryptography. And it may be enough to actually get the password, but it may be enough to, like, reduce the space of possible passwords enough to the point where you can now brute force that small space. Terrifying and beautiful. Um, one, uh, one thing that, I'm, that we didn't cover in the artificial intelligence discussion is, like, if, if it goes poorly, if, if we um, build a computer that can outthink us and then grow with no, no conceivable limit, and then, then we, and in, 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 uh, in essence, we sort of obsolete ourselves, like it could go very poorly. The computer could easily, and if we don't um, put in the proper safeguards, very likely will just, just crush us all. Um, what happens if it goes well? That's a, that's a really fun question. <laughs> um, if it goes well, then uh, I like to say that we win. Like, humans win. Like, GG, humans win this time. Woo! Humans! Um, so if we get, if we get uh, an AI, I sometimes think of this as, you know the scene in The, in the Lion King where um, Timon and Pumbaa find little baby Simba? Like, a lion! Ah, no! When it grows up, it'll, it'll eat us! And Timon kind of says, wait, unless, what if he, what if he was on our side? Um, so, <laughs> so if, we, if, if, the, if the AI is on our side, then uh, the, protein fo- the protein folding problem, for example, that can probably be solved pretty straightforwardly by an AI that has super intelligence. Which like, is, is basically the problem that all the, all the proteins, all the, like, the chemical type stuff that we know about is actually really, really similar to each other, but for some reason it's really difficult to... Make it do what we want. Basically, uh, given a sequence of proteins, uh, you know, like DNA is two-dimensional, mm-hmm. right? Like you have a sequence that with a start and an end, um, which I, actually, I guess that's one dimension. You know, we have this like string of proteins, mm-hmm. but in the real world, uh, there's all these like complicated chemical interactions that go on. So they actually fold up into really complicated 3D shapes. And given that, that 3D shape is what determines its properties determines like, right. which other shapes it'll like bind to and therefore like what it'll react with all these kind of things so the protein folding problem is basically given a sequence of amino acids in text form what will it actually do and so clearly if we understood that we could you know build proteins that really efficiently attack cancers or repair uh, Alzheimer's cells or uh, like bind to ocean plastic and just like eat it up, like, we could solve a lot of huge problems in um, biology with the protein folding, with, like, a machine that can accurately predict the structure of proteins. Okay. So, that's huge, like, suddenly, you know, CRISPR becomes super powerful, we can model gene therapy really well, like, we really, like, we make huge progress on biology with that. Um, Probably with global warming, too. Because, you know, suddenly we can get really efficient, uh, like, photovoltaic photovoltaic cells for our solar panels like basically science gets like like a fucking like turbocharge right. um, we get uh really advanced models of physics and then probably start making super high predictions about like the you know we can figure out how to like build super high advanced 
telescopes and then aim them at the sky and then put this giant AI oracle towards explaining all the data and trying to like resolve open problems in physics. So we get a theory of everything and then we can hopefully build a bunch of really interesting machines we couldn't build before. Um, we can figure out how to put, how to make like really efficient, uh, the thing, the thing I keep looking at is we then get like super efficient spacecraft and power technology. So then we can put satellites around the sun that mirror solar panel directly, and they're obviously like super efficient because they're always shining because they're directly around the sun. Next to the sun. And then we microwave their power back to Earth. So now we have unlimited free power for everyone and everything. And we also have like folding up DNA computers that can manufacture whatever you want. So that. You know, suddenly we don't have scarcity of resources anymore. Like, anything you want, you can make with unlimited power and resources. Uh, and so that automatically, like, fixes a lot of problems in the world. Jeez. When you say we, what you mean is this giant robot that can do anything? Yeah. Uh, so this becomes a problem of politics at that point. I okay. mean, like, we already have, like, more resources than we... You know, like, the number of, uh, of empty houses... <laughs> you know, outweighs the number uh, of homeless people, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, just because we have technology or the capacity to do something doesn't mean we have the political will to do it. Right. Um, but but another aspect of this, uh, of a successful artificial general intelligence would be a sort of end to politics and war as we know it. Hopefully. Uh, you know... Artificial intelligence, you know, uh, I don't know what will happen when you combine the super intelligence and AI with the super stupidity of modern politics. <laughs> you know, it's like an unstoppable object meets a... Uh, uh, an unstoppable immovable. force meets an immovable object. Right. But um, certainly I think there's reason to be optimistic. Whew. Okay. Um, well, let's, uh, let's stay optimistic then. What... What, I mean, do you have any, any idea what life, I mean, you've you talked a lot about technology, what will life be like after a, a successful artificial general intelligence? That's a really interesting question. Um, and I think this comes back down to the problem of, of ethics, which is that we don't know what utopia would look like. Even if we had the technological capacity to make utopia, we don't know what utopia would look like. And realistically, utopia means different things different people Mm -hmm. like the perfect world for me is not going to be the perfect world for you Mm -hmm. and so i think we have a challenge of how do we how do we make a better world that all humans can agree on without making it hell for some people i mean you know some some people love the idea of you know being ruled by this kind of benevolent ai that is you know genuinely benevolent you know that actually is trustworthy and actually loves you and has no selfish interests at heart and I think that kind of society would probably be really uh, enjoyable to live under. But a lot of people hate that idea. Mm. You know, do you want an AI that cures death? Some people really do. Some people really don't. Um, I, I think we have... Um, I think that literature has a really important role to play here. We need to figure out what kind of utopia we want to shoot for. Uh, and it's, you know, uh, Laurie Penny, uh, who's a, an excellent, uh, journalist and activist and author. She always says that, um, you know, we need a revival of utopian fiction, uh, because we need, you know, you can't aim for something if you haven't imagined it, if you haven't imagined it yet. Uh, and so it's, uh, 
you know, people point to uh, Ian M. Banks's culture novels, uh, the story set in Utopia, mm. uh, where, you know, where they do have benevolent AIs that kind of, you know, order society and protect everyone. And it's about the, the life that you would live there. And some people think that would be great. And some people look at the culture novels and say, God, that sounds hideous. Mm. Um, uh, Cory Doctorow's book, Walk Away, which I absolutely love and would recommend, um, tries to f- picture the birth of Utopia. And his society sounds absolutely lovely. Again, like some people probably wouldn't like it, though. Um, and so, you know, I think we, we need, we need a, a resurgence of utopian fiction. I'm very much on Laurie Penny's side here. That we need to picture what a better world could look like. You know, you can't live as though you were living in the first days of a better nation unless you know what the better nation is. Beautiful. Do you have, do you have a vision? I'm generally in favor of uh, making small incremental improvements. I'm very skeptical of revolutions. They tend to leave a lot of people dead. And I think that, like, I'd be very happy to live in the current world, except people don't die of disease and we all have unlimited power and there's no need for, like, oil or the wars that are fought over oil or the environmental damage that's done by these industries because we all have, yeah, uh, yeah, even a very minimal AI intervention of giving everyone 100% clean power for free and, you know... uh, DNA computers are programmed to replicate anything like a super powerful advanced 3D printer, but don't make harmful viruses. Um, if the AI just did those couple of things and also like would intervene to stop nuclear wars from happening or like biological wars or, you know, intervene to stop X risks, mm-hmm. existential risks, um, even that kind of minimal improvement, I think, would constitute like a win. Beautiful. Adam Chalmers, it's a pleasure and an honor. Thank you for having me on board. This is General Ike, Building Jerusalem.